says the West is already at war, whether we want to be or not. And the world order, as America has known it for decades, well, it's reforming right before our eyes. Understanding information warfare, as we talk with writer and expert Molly McHugh, the woman who says Vladimir Putin's attack on the U.S. is our Pearl Harbor. Hi, thanks for being with us. I'm Melissa Thanks Ross. Thanks for having me on. Hey, and, Molly. <laughs> and I'm Matt Craig. That, no, no worries. Uh, this is political insanity. Yeah, it's the weekly podcast <laughs> where Matt and myself try to make a little sense out of our insane political times. We've been off for a little while. It's good to be back, Matt. It is. And if you think the world has gone mad, well, basically it has. Yeah, we try to bring a little sanity back to your life by uh, bringing big names onto this podcast to talk about the impact of the Trump administration, what's going on with the Mueller probe, and other issues, too. And today, we're so pleased to welcome Molly. Molly McHugh. She is a specialist in the intersection of cyber warfare and what they call psyops, psychological operations. In other words, the disinformation that we see spreading everywhere across our social media, despite efforts to warn the public about it, Matt. That's correct. And Molly served as an advisor to the former president of Georgia. And we're coming to you from Florida, so we have to specify <laughs> that's the country of Georgia. Yeah, not the, yeah, not the state. Right. She is a writer and expert in information warfare and specializes in U.S.-Russia relations. She also has her own lobbying firm. Is it Fianna or Fianna Strategies? Yeah with, more yep. on, yeah, with more on that and the latest revelations into the Russia investigation and everything that's going on right now, there's so much going on. Uh, we're so pleased to have you on this podcast, Molly McHugh. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to do it. Sorry for interrupting you guys. <laughs> oh, no problem. You know, I, you, you caught my eye uh, with a number of articles you've written, but um, the most recent one you penned, I think, for Politico said that... Putin's attack on the U.S. during the 2016 election should be taken as seriously as Pearl Harbor. Why do you think it's been so difficult for America to respond uh, appropriately to this sort of cyber warfare that we've been dealing with now for quite some time, actually more than a couple of years? But it's been going on for a while. Absolutely. And and I think um, I, I wrote that piece with um, Lieutenant General Mark Kirtling, who used to be the commander of U.S. Army Europe. Um, and that came out of a conversation that we were having just about that exact thing, that if this were an attack with planes or tanks or whatever else, we would have mobilized long ago to respond. Um, and after Pearl Harbor, after 9-11, there were these tremendous deep thinks about how did we miss that these were going to be the threats to our security, how do we provide better national defense, um, how do we better identify and combat these types of threats, um, and that hasn't happened after 2016, despite the uh, incredible and increased warnings from our intelligence professionals and uh, our security agencies that this is going to be a serious threat, not just from the Russians, but also from the Chinese and others, um, if we don't uh, better figure out how to combat it. And the lack of dialogue on that from the top. I mean, yes, the intelligence agencies are trying to fill that void and, and setting up little things on their own, but the White House is not coordinating this interagency process. Um, they have not had an interagency meeting on Russia policy since taking office. Um, and that is pretty extraordinary, given that our intelligence agencies believe that we were attacked by Russia. Hey, Molly, in, in terms of the bigger picture, and, and I think you've, you've written basically after 2008, where after the, the Georgia invasion, 
that Putin kind of changed his tactics or Russia kind of changed its tactics in terms of just a much longer strategy of information warfare uh, combined with traditional methods of of uh, other types of warfare what what are they what are we looking at here in the big picture what what is the ultimate goal of of what Putin is trying to do and 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 how are we missing it here in the United States it's it's a good point that you raise in, in terms of 2008. Um, so in 2008, Georgia, uh, there was the Georgian-Russian War when Russia invaded Georgia during the Beijing Olympics. Um, and that came after, essentially, uh, in 2007, there was a massive Russian state cyber attack against Estonia, which was really the first one of these sort of huge state-sponsored cyber attacks that were well-documented and have been written about extensively. But um, so 2008, the war didn't really go the way Russia wanted it. Obviously, Georgia, which is tiny, couldn't win against Russia, uh, but they didn't really get what they wanted, which was for the government to collapse. Um, it was the West sort of came to the support of Russia or of Georgia, uh, negotiated a ceasefire, helped them with financial aid and other things. And so afterward, there was sort of a lot of thinking on the Russian side. And it, you saw the pivot from what they had had essentially since the collapse of the Soviet Union, which is a clunky conscript army that was quite large, but uh, didn't really have much capability, uh, to what they have now, which is the new special forces-based model. So most of what you see Russia using in Ukraine and in Syria are these new special forces units that they've trained that are huge and, and capable, not quite like our special forces, but same same model, same idea. Um, and then reinvestment in new equipment and everything else, and that's sort of on the military side. But the other question was, how do we achieve our political objectives and our strategic objectives uh, below the line of conflict. So what are our, our means of political warfare against our opponents? And this is the time period when you saw the Kremlin pouring money into its new state media apparatus, so RT and Sputnik and everything that has spun out of that, um, investing in uh, political parties in Europe, uh, in new means of sort of influence, pouring money outside of Russia to influence um, compatriot groups and, and other things abroad. Um, but but a, an entire new refocusing on what may have previously been called soft power things, cultural ties, political right. ties, um, uh, economic ties, uh, arms deals, things like that, um, uh, as a new means of influence, as a new means of cultivating assets and allies outside of Russia. Um, and that has really been the focus since, and I think sort of, especially since 2012, when Russia really kind of figured out... Um, looking at, it, to start the Obama campaign in 2008, I think was a, a critical turning point for them in terms of understanding some of these tools. But in 2012, you saw Russia start using um, targeted online um, black PR campaigns, uh, the same types of things we've been discussing around the Trump election in 2016 with Cambridge Analytica, with his own team, with others. Um, but you really saw them start understanding that social media as a means of uh, identifying allies, of recruitment, of transmitting a message in ways you previously couldn't. Um, and in, so in that time period, you also see a, a, a real expansion of what they're focusing on in terms of Facebook, Twitter, how to use the internet um, to transmit the messages that they want people to see. And um, you know, we're coming. And it's really interesting. And you know, Facebook is coming off the biggest one-day loss of any stock in U.S. history. The other day, they lost 120 billion in market value. They don't seem, I don't think, 
what do you think, Matt? They don't seem to be sufficiently chastened to me. Um, I, I don't see any real hardening of these social media targets so as to prevent more of this information warfare, disinformation, outright lies being uh, spread on these social media platforms to influence the public, to believe things re- that just aren't true. I mean, Molly, as we as we go into the, the midterm elections and then ahead to 2020, I mean, do you think that we will see a replay of what we saw happen in 2016? Uh, yes, because it hasn't stopped. And um, I, I think while there is somewhat expanded awareness of some of this, uh, partially because there's been kind of a lack of leadership at the top in the U.S. Uh, from the White House on this issue. Um, the public is not sufficiently aware of what happened. It has become an intensely partisan discussion. Um, we are not connecting our own evaluation of what happened in 2016 to, for example, the U.K. investigations about how the... Right, Brexit. Brexit and our elections, those two were both both had the tentacles of a Russian op. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Very similar tactics were used in both, uh, and behind and potentially connected to both of them were these companies, SCL, Cambridge Analytica, these other sort of big data processors and and analytics firms. Um, So there's been a lot of, you know, shadowy, conspiracy-looking discussion of all of this, but the core of it is very true, which is private companies, uh, that were well-funded by private interests of whatever kind um, were running uh, essentially tactics that have been developed for warfare, for, for psychological operations against mass populations, um, m- intentionally meant to be deceptive and subversive to turn people's own beliefs against the decisions they were making um, in order to change the outcome of elections. And uh, this, I think this is the aspect that's really important because there was so much discussion. I think in the U.S. we've kind of caught up to this now a bit, but there was so much discussion at the beginning about advertisement and deceptive ads and whatever. It's not about ads. It's about huge networks of fake accounts that are set up to look like Americans who are veterans and mothers and gun rights supporters and religious advocates and you know regular guys running small businesses somewhere in the middle of America um, fake networks uh, of accounts that are meant to look like U.S. local news, but they're not U.S. local news. They're being run by Russians. Um, but these huge networks of, of uh, accounts that are interacting with each other to promote news and narrative um, and ideas that look like they're coming to you from other Americans just like you, but in fact it is a hostile foreign adversary. Um, and the same thing was happening in Brexit. And all of this is meant to target places where there are already seams, essentially, the, the, the political weaknesses, the areas of divide, the areas of intense debate in our country. Um, in the U.S., the Russians really focus on issues of racial divisions, of police violence, um, of immigration, uh, different economic issues, but things where there's already environmental issues, things where there are already intense debates that people are really mobilized around. And they'll come in on both sides of those and try to spin up opinion in different ways that they believe will help achieve outcomes that are of benefit to them. And um, if if you start looking at the very real factual data-based reporting coming out of the UK Parliament, they just released a big report this weekend, which is out now, about their evaluation of some of the Brexit um, things. 
um, and some of the reporting coming out of the U.S. Senate uh, and others about how we're looking at this and what actually happened. These are serious, full-spectrum, multi-pronged attacks against British and American society. And this is the part that's so hard to see. It's not an attack on the government. It's not yeah. like a cyber operation. It's our way of life. It, 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 Matt, yeah. it's, it's our way of life. It's our democracy. It's having a free, open society. Right. And, a and liberal, I, and not liberal in terms of liberal conservative, but liberal in the classical sense, democracy. Right. And, and you know, this past week, uh, we've seen a kind of a shift in the, in the Trump uh, explanation of what may have occurred here, at least in terms of the Trump campaign's involvement. Um, this morning, uh, uh, Rudolph Giuliani was on basically saying that if collusion happened, it, it may not be a crime, which obviously is a shift that, you know, collusion never possibly happened. With your expertise, uh, clearly, you know, the fact that Russia was involved in this tremendous campaign is is clear. But do you have any clue of what the Mueller investigation will find on, you know, in terms of the Trump's campaign's contacts with Russia and coordination with Russia? Um, you know, you've looked at these campaigns in other countries. What do you think he's going to find? I think there, you know, somebody asked me this in, in January 2017, essentially. What, what the hell do you think we're going to find from these investigations, if you had mm. to guess? And what I told them then was there will be two things where there will be clear, if there is anything, there will be two areas where there will be clear ties, and it will be on money and on data. And I think you've seen already that Mueller is very focused on uh, tracing financial ties between Russian actors and Americans of various kinds. Um, there's been a really incredible and probably deeply unnerving to uh, certain actors in the alt-right sphere uh, detail coming out of Mueller's indictments about tra tracing financial transactions, in particular their ability to trace Bitcoin transactions, which everybody kind of thought was impossible, but clearly they have done. Um, and that is very interesting because Bitcoin is like a giant money laundering <laughs> vehicle. <laughs> but, um <laughs> Uh, so I think on that side, there will be um, reasonably significant documentation that there were Russian actors, however you want to define that, uh, businesses connected to the Kremlin, interest advancing the Kremlin's interests, uh, whatever, coming through whatever American actors they could get it to. For example, this discussion around Maria Butina and the her NRA. attempts to cultivate the NRA. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so I think there will be... There will be a lot on money. I think there's already a lot. There's already enough that if we didn't know any of this, and if it came out today and someone showed it to you, you would just say, well, holy crap. Right. Yeah, but it, it's coming out in dribs and drabs. Do you think yep. that's deliberate? Do you think the special counsel is, is, is rolling this out in bits and pieces to sort of soften the beach up, I guess, for whatever the, you know... Uh, whatever <laughs> comes at the, the end when he issues his report. I think there's the two sides of this for sure. One is obviously intense investigative and journalistic focus on all of these um, questions and issues over the last 18 months, uh, well-deservedly so. So that has uncovered many things. I think you've seen a lot of, uh, I think part of the issue with the way that Russia operates, um, it's not just, as Paul Manafort famously said, a guy who comes up to you with an FSB badge pinned to his jacket. Uh, they use a lot of informal actors, uh, a lot of you know people who are businessmen or diplomats or a guy who just happens to be in Washington doing things. And um, 
that I, I think for, for people who are not more aware of some of this, particularly before any of this started being discussed in a more public forum, I think there were a lot of people who ended up uh, unintentionally aiding bad actors, not really knowing what mm. it was that they were doing. So I think mm. some, uh, there's mm. been a lot of those who have come forward and provided information about what they know to journalists and to others, to Mueller and his team, um, because nobody wants to be discovered as unwittingly providing aid to a foreign power uh, in the news. Like, they would rather do it on their own, you know, sort of bring that information forward on their own. Mm. So I think there has been a lot of that. Um, and But I think you're, you're right in terms of pacing from the Mueller team, which is they are being very deliberate in how they build the case that is being presented, where first it was just these Russians, then it was Russians who are focused on the United States, and then it was, and here's the connection between some of these things. I do think it's quite deliberate um, in terms of sort of moving the needle from one end of the spectrum to the other. And I think uh, they have a, from from what we've seen just in the broad detail of the indictments, they have a really good grasp on the Americans that these Russian actors were working with and targeting and who was willingly providing support to them. Uh, and who knew what they were doing often for the most part. So um, I think on money there will be a fairly significant trail that will be fairly damning for certain organizations and individuals. And I think on data in terms of, of coordinating data targeting and other operations that were connected to uh, information operations against the United States, I think there'll be a fair bit. Uh, the question then will be, can you prove that everybody knew what they were doing? And I'm not sure what the answer to that will be. But um, I do think that uh, at this point, the way that uh, the Russian information architecture is intertwined into and impossible to disconnect from some of the American information architecture on the alt-right and what is now being defined as the alt-left and all sorts of other strange actors in the information universe. <laughs> um, hmm. I, I think it's hard to unravel those things, um, but I do think there are places where you can look and see, did these actors know what they are doing? For example, Infowars, which spent years reposting content from Russian state media right. and advancing conspiracy theories that have helped the Russians' cause. You see it on the right and the left. Um, there are actors on the, on the left who uh, have been singled out as possibly being funnels for this kind of propaganda and disinformation. You know, it, what a fascinating discussion, though, Matt. It, yeah. We're just in a completely different time. And and, and let, let me ask you maybe one more big picture question. What, 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 is, what is Putin looking to do? And in, in other words, I saw it may have been one of your articles where Estonia is, is, is ready to defend themselves if necessary. And what is the long game here? Because uh, although Americans probably can't look past, at some point, uh, President Trump's no longer going to be president in two or, or you know, uh, six years or maybe sooner. Uh, but the bottom line is Putin has a much uh, bigger strategic goal than just the current Trump administration. What, what, what would you think is his long-term goal? The, the sort of highlight goals of Putin's Kremlin have been for some time uh, trying to take apart NATO, trying to weaken or uh, destroy the European Union um, as the alliances that the United States really relies on for uh, for our projection of power in the world and for our prosperity and security. Um, and the third piece of that is limiting the possibilities of American power in the world, which is ultimately the goal of weakening NATO and the EU and challenging 
um, the concept of the post-World War II sort of security architecture that Russia believes it is tremendously disadvantaged within, which is possibly true, but because they refuse to participate in the rules-based international world order. Um, right. I think those used to be the goals, and we've talked about these. There's been a lot of discussion about these in the last two years as people have paid more attention to, to the fact that Putin is fighting this war in new and fairly scary ways. But I think that it's been so long since he met real resistance. Putin is very cautious for the most part, but he takes tremendous risks when he feels there is an open field of battle. And uh, really during most of the Obama administration uh, and now, right. um, he has felt there has not been much resistance to the means of power projection that he is using, and he keeps pushing. And uh, so you've seen, uh, I mean, we t- we're talking a lot about these sort of deceptive, hidden shadow warfare tactics, but if you look at, at Russian hard power, uh, they have, in the last 10 years, moved entirely to new basing and operational platforms in the eastern and southern Mediterranean, um, new deployments in the Arctic, new deployments in the Far East. I mean, Russia is fairly aggressively pushing its interests in the world with hard and soft power. And we haven't really paid enough attention to that or what it is costing us. And I think at this point, he feels, he is to the point where he feels like he can keep pushing to really change, not just to, to change the world order so that America is disadvantaged and Russia can compete better, but to change our position within it. And this is what worries many of us when we see what President Trump says about NATO and about our allies while defending Russia, because it is changing American opinion. There was a poll that came out that said, you know, almost 60% of Republican voters believe that NATO is a problem and that we shouldn't be supporting them. And that is an enormous shift in public opinion in a very short period of time that probably made the Kremlin very happy. And I think the issue is, at this point, the way that that Trump sort of contributes to, willingly or knowingly or not, Russian information warfare against the United States is shifting the needle in a significant portion of our population in terms of what our beliefs are and um, what we support, what we don't support. And unraveling that, whether he is president or not, is going to be difficult because you see the Republican Party really freaking out about what their identity is. Is this our voter? How can we win? What do we have to say? Um, you see Democrats reacting to this. Do we become more radical? Do we become more centrist? How do we deal with this issue? Do we become more polarized nation, or do we try to pull it back to the center? Um, all of these things, all of this tremendous internal churn in the United States um, keeps us from focusing on things we should be doing in the world and keeps us from making better decisions about our economic well-being and our security, uh, and all of that benefits Putin. Wow. Well, in the end, the voters will have their say, uh, you know, uh, what kind of country we want to be. Uh, You know, one of the reasons we do this podcast is to make people aware of what's happening by bringing experts like you to chat with us. So Molly McHugh, we thank you so much for giving us some of your expertise, really great information and insights from you. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. That's Molly McHugh, a specialist in U.S.-Russia relations, information warfare. I'm going to hang up with her. And Matt, wow, I mean, pretty mind-blowing and pretty disturbing. Right. Just the, it's like, sobering. Again, what, what, what Putin is attempting, uh, both as, as she stated with hard power and soft power, is, is amazing. 
And uh, while Russia was kind of looked really in the early 2000s as a regional power, it is now stepping forward on the world stage and saying that, you know, we want to be one of the, if not the major power in the world. And, she, you know, we didn't even get into this. Maybe in another show we can. She mentioned China, too. That We need to talk yeah, about that, That's them a whole too. nother. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that'll be another time. In the meantime, thanks for listening to Political Insanity. I'm Melissa Ross. And I'm Matt Corrigan. We'll talk to you next time.